Hey guys, the holidays are here, and that means it's time to stock up on some of the best hair and beard products out there, thanks to the folks over at Fable Beard Company. Christmas means they have great seasonal products, like their new one, the Santa Lantern. This is a Christmas pine and spooky holiday scent, featuring a scent profile of Christmas pine, cold winter night, sneaky pomegranate, and a spooky holiday wreath. I'm wearing it right now, and I really like this one. Or how about their famous, and one that I absolutely love, holiday scent, The Claws. This one is a wondrous blend of Christmas cookies, sweet vanilla frosting, and holiday cheer. As always, they come in beard oil, beard butter, a beard wash, and a co-wash conditioner. They're fantastic for both your head hair and your facial hair, and as I've said numerous times, I use them on my dogs, and their coats have never felt better. Head over to www.fablebeardco.com and check out all of their limited-time holiday scents. And be sure to use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off each and every single order. All right, let's get to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 28, The Guadalcanal Campaign, Part 4. All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen Welcome back. Now, last time we left off, ready for the Battle of Edson's Ridge. I want to jump right into this one, but before we do that, let me just remind you, if you're enjoying the show and you want to help support our endeavors, please consider joining the Patreon. We have the newest series, Colonial America, over there, as well as one on the quagmire in the Middle East. Oh, and we've already got the finished bonus series, 1983, the year the world almost ended. So that's like well over 20 hours, probably something closer to 40 hours of bonus content that's available for $10 a month. You can sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash American History. Now, if you're not into Patreon, you can also make a donation via Buy Me A Coffee. Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Sean Worswick. You can contribute to help keep the lights on, and it's greatly appreciated. If you have any questions, feel free to email them. My email address is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. I love receiving email, and I will respond promptly. And let me just thank you now for sending that email. Lastly, let me encourage you to drop a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. And if you've got a few minutes, a two-sentence review saying how much you enjoy the show is something that really does help. It helps with both advertising, but also with new listeners who are looking for a show like ours. And before you get started, let me just say this episode may not be for you if you're squeamish or if you have young children listening. I'd say this one is PG-rated, maybe PG-13, um, there's some quotes that are a little rough to our ears, uh, so I just wanted to warn you. All right, so this week, the song of the week is Stormy Weather by Ethel Waters, and I'll see you in a few minutes. Don't know why there's no sun up in the sky, stormy weather, since my man and I ain't together. 
raining all the time Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere Stormy weather Just can't get my poor self together I'm weary all the time, the time, so weary all the time. When he went away, the blues walked in and met me. If he stays away, old rocking chair will get me. All I do is pray the Lord above will let me Walk in the sun once more Can't go on All I have in life is gone Stormy weather Since my man and I ain't together Keeps raining all the time Keeps raining around and I'm still feeling bad rain pouring down blinding every hope I have pittering pattering beating and splattering drives me mad love 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 this misery is just too much for me Okay, now as the sun set on September 7th, Colonel Edson and his raiders boarded two transports and two glorified patrol boats to make the trip from Tulavi and Gavudu over to Guadalcanal. They landed, as other American forces had, unopposed. The Japanese were well aware of the landing, and even if they did possess the ability to challenge the Americans, they decided not to do so. This was, at least in part, due to the presence of a cruiser and four destroyers. They, the Japanese, decided it was best to leave their positions and allow the Americans to come ashore unmolested. They did, however, inform their brigade commander, General Kawaguchi, the enemy was conducting a major landing in his rear, and he then informed his commanders on Rabaul. Now, Colonel Mike Edson, the night he arrived on the canal, went immediately to General Thomas Vandergriff's headquarters and notified him that, quote, this is no motley of Japs, end quote. Later the next morning, Edson told Vandergrift that the Japanese were coming. Pointing to a ridge on an aerial photograph, he said, quote, this looks like a good approach, end quote. The problem was that this was the ridge where the general had placed his headquarters. Instead of moving, he ordered Edson to take his raiders, some 700 men, and block the open path to his headquarters. Now, the Japanese weren't the only problem the Marines and Vandergrift were facing. One problem was that, just like the Japanese had issues with conflicting orders, the same could be said for the Americans. Admiral Gormley had received a message from the Joint Chiefs ordering him to turn over one reinforced regiment of, quote, experienced amphibious troops as well as the ships needed to mount them to General MacArthur. The problem with this was the only experienced amphibious troops in the South Pacific were currently fighting on Guadalcanal, 
and the Navy did not yet have the strength in the region to meet the request. Now, a third problem, one that was more immediate than orders to his superiors from Washington, was the fact that Vandegrift's men were facing an outbreak of malaria. And then finally, there were shortages appearing every day in supplies of things like bombs, bullets, oxygen, even lubricating oil. Now, by the 10th of September, there were only 11 Wildcat fighters available on the island, and the Japanese aerial attacks were mounting. Ominous signs pointed to the fact that the Japanese high command was planning on mounting a major attempt to retake the island. These signs did not go unnoticed. Admiral Nimitz, on that same day, ordered all carrier aircraft, quote, that could be spared, unquote, to be sent to Guadalcanal, a direct contradiction of naval doctrine that Navy airplanes should be flying off of Navy ships, specifically carriers. Now, in the meantime, Edson told his men they were moving to a quiet spot just off the beach, which was a bit of gallows humor on his part. His men, however, were well aware of the fact that they were likely not moving into any such quiet area. What none of them knew is that they stood between the approaching enemy and Henderson Field, which was now at the center of the war in the Pacific. Not all of the news was bad. Vice Admiral Richard Turner had flown into Henderson Field to talk with the commander on the ground. Vandegrift was happy to learn the Admiral had a plan on bringing in the 7th Marines, which meant 4,000 fresh troops. However, he was then dismayed to learn that, again, the Navy was trying to tell the Marines how to use their men. To make matters worse, that evening the Tokyo Express was running on schedule, and for about two hours, Japanese naval shells pounded what was going to be known as Bloody Ridge. Luckily for the Marines, the Admiral was still there when the shelling took place. Right before he left, the next morning, he told Vandegrift that he, the Admiral, um, would bring in the 7th, and the Colonel could use them as he saw fit. September the 12th dawned, and the Marines on Bloody Ridge completed their work, hard as it was. The Marines had driven themselves. Spools of wire had been brought up and strung. Extra grenades and ammunition cases were strategically placed. In the rear, howitzers had been moved to new positions to give the raiders close-in fire support. Fire plans were drawn up. Maps gridded. A forward artillery observer was stationed in Edson's command post, the CP, and communications wire ran backwards to the fire direction center and Vandegrift's headquarters. And the expected attack came that evening. First, there was some shelling of the ridge by the Japanese Navy. Most of the shells fell to the west. And then, 20 minutes after it started, the shelling was over. Next, a rocket rose out of the jungle to light the area, and the Japanese attacked. Cries of Banzai and Marine, you die, greeted the Marines as they were hit by the enemy. It was a long, bloody fight, and the Marines almost broke. But almost doesn't count. At dawn, the Japanese melted back into the jungle. That morning, Edson called in his staff officers and company commanders for a meeting. They all sat in a circle drinking coffee and smoking, listening to the commander. Quote, they were testing, just testing. They'll be back. But maybe not as many of them, or maybe more. I want all positions improved, all wire lines paralleled, a hot meal for the men. Today, dig, wire up tight, and get some sleep. We'll all need it. The nip will be back. I want to surprise him, end quote. Edson's pullback meant the lines would be tighter. The fields of fire for their automatic weapons were improved. It also meant the Japanese would have to charge over 100 yards of open ground in order to get at the enemy. Now that afternoon, Japanese air raids came in again. 
but this time, thanks to Admiral Nimitz, there were plenty of fighters to deal with them. Wildcats had arrived from the Hornet and the Wasp, and they even had six Avenger torpedo bombers. In total, Guadalcanal had received 60 planes, but they weren't the only ones. On Rabaul, the Japanese had received more. On September the 12th, the 26th Air Flotilla came into the battle as reinforcements for the devastated 25th. 140 total aircraft were added to those that were already based out of Bougainville and Rabaul. On September 13th, many of them were sitting on the runways, engines running, ready to go. Troop transports were loaded and waiting word for Guadalcanal and General Kawaguchi. He was supposed to have taken back Henderson Field from the Americans, at least late the previous evening or early this morning. But so far, they'd not received any word. Admiral Sukahara ordered four scout planes to head south and see if they could see anything. They came back riddled with bullet holes. This suggested the Americans were still in possession of Henderson. Instead of sending the planes and troops south for the surrender ceremony, they decided to renew the regularly scheduled attacks on the Americans. A flight of 26 Bettys and the accompanying fighters raced south. Rather than hit the ridge, which the Japanese wisely decided would be unsafe, they decided to hit both Henderson and the Marine Force, which had landed a few days earlier in what they thought was an attempt to sandwich Kawaguchi's forces. The force they thought was on the beach was, of course, Edson's troops. What they found when they hit there was Kawaguchi's rear echelon. Those Japanese soldiers jumped for joy one minute and were then blown apart by their own pilots the next. Admiral Yamamoto, growing ever more frustrated by the commanders on Rabaul, wondered where was Kawaguchi and what was going on. Was he still in the jungle beyond Henderson, preparing to launch another assault? Now, part of the problem with the assault on the evening of the 12th was the fact that the Japanese were strung out over a large area, trying to cut their way through the jungle. This was probably a reason that the western and eastern sides of the assault had not attacked on schedule. Kawaguchi this evening was determined that would not happen again. The Japanese, in an attempt to trick the Marines, first launched smoke, trying to get them to get up and run, thinking this was a gas attack. It didn't work. When the attack came, it was in two major waves. The Japanese troops moved forward, chanting as they went, quote, U.S. Marines be dead tomorrow, U.S. Marines be dead tomorrow, end quote. The Marines responded, quote, you'll eat shit first, you bastards, end quote. At this point, the entire ridge erupted with the sound of gunfire. The Japanese soldiers died, but on they came. Platoon after platoon, company after company, on and on they came. They bent the lines of the Marines, but they could not break them. Private First Class Jimmy Corzine saw four Japanese troops set up a machine gun and rushed them. He used his bayonet to kill the gunner, then swung the gun around and sprayed the enemy with fire. Then Corzine himself was killed and in 1943, he was awarded the Navy Cross for heroism. On the right, the Japanese chopped the Marines into small groups. The Americans were faltering, with Captain John Sweeney's company down to 60 men and fighting in pockets of resistance. On their left, the parachutist, led by Torgerson, was splintering under both a Japanese infantry charge and mortar fire. In an attempt to motivate his men, Torgerson taunted them, held roll call, and challenged each man by name to go forward. And they did. They fought back using their machine guns, but the Japanese fought hard as well. 
They lobbed grenades down onto the Marines to take out the automatic weapons. Sergeant Keith Perkins, creeping over the ridge, looking for ammunition for his two guns, returned to find his men killed. He jumped on one of the machine guns, and then he himself was killed in action. At this point, the Japanese launched a flare over the battlefield, and seven destroyers, sitting in Iron Bottom Bay, shelled Henderson Field. For an hour, the big naval guns rained destruction down on the airfield. They stopped, waiting to see the flare of victory from Kawaguchi, but it didn't come. Instead, they heard firing to the south and to the east of the objective. The battle was getting confused now. Edson was taking a report via the phone when another voice cut in reporting all was, quote, excellent, end quote. This was evidence the Japanese had cut the wire and that Captain Sweeney, to the right of Edson, was cut off. A blast lifted him up and slammed him to the ground. He used the phone to shield his face from the fragments that were whizzing over him. Then he noticed his men were drifting to the rear. He got up, ran to them, and yelled, pointing at the enemy, quote, The only thing they have that you don't is guts, end quote. Major Bailey also noticed Marines retreating. He ran to them, caught the arms of some of the dazed men. He slapped them and yelled, You, do you want to live forever? This was the cry of a man named Dan Daly that was now echoing down across the decades from Bella Wood. Just as it did back in World War I, it made this generation of young Americans ashamed of what they were about to do. Thus, they turned around and continued to fight. As they fought on, Colonel Edson lay on his belly, using the radio to bring in artillery fire closer and closer. Corporal Watson, or a man named Corporal Watson, who was, by the morning, Lieutenant Watson, was acting as a spotter. He directed the fire to try and break up the enemy's massing points. Quote, closer, end quote. Edson whispered, closer. Get in closer. The ridge shook and flashed as a rain of death came down amongst both the Marines and the Japanese. Terrified, the Japanese soldiers jumped into American foxholes in an attempt to avoid the incoming fire. Instead, they met death at the end of a Marine and his knife. At least one account notes, the night was terrible, filled with the screams of the wounded. Artillery, if you don't know, doesn't kill cleanly. It tears the body with chunks of steel. It blows off limbs and burns off other pieces of the body. But often the death is anything but clean. Now this caused the Japanese to fall back again. Then at 0200, they came again. And again it was behind a mortar barrage, which cut off communication between Vandegrift's headquarters and the artillery. Once again came the shouts of, quote, Marine, you die, end quote. But this time, there was a lack of belief on the part of the Japanese, while the Marines were excited by the scent of victory. They replied with strings of obscenities and bullets and cut down the Japanese. It was 0230 when Edson called headquarters and said, quote, we can hold, end quote. News Robert Leckie notes, battles don't just end suddenly. They sort of die down. Throughout the early morning hours of that day in September, the battle sputtered on. By around 0600, the main action was over. There were a few instances of fighting, such as when several Japanese soldiers broke through the lines, shouting Banzai, only to be killed. General Kawaguchi was departing, realizing the fighting was done. He had taken the tally of the battle. 708 dead, 505 wounded. 
The American firepower that had met the Japanese was ferocious. Even now, American aircraft were coming in and raining death on the remaining Japanese. To make this defeat even more bitter, Colonel Watanabe had failed to join the battle. He led a powerful battalion, which had spent the night marking time. When Kawaguchi heard this, he was openly distraught. Now the general had a choice to make. He could return to Taivu in the east, or he could move west and join Colonel Akinosuke Oka and his men. He decided to go west. 400 badly wounded men were placed on improvised litters, and they moved out. This ragged, bleeding, and badly beaten column began to move south. The jungle gave them cover from above, but it made the going rough, to say the least. Now that evening, the column stopped, exhausted and starving. Their rice supplies had given out. To make life a bit better for those who weren't wounded, they laid the wounded on the ground to the rear. This meant their cries were not very loud, and the stench of their wounds would not keep the others awake. At some point, someone switched on a radio and listened to a broadcast coming from Tokyo. A mass patriotic meeting was being held, and citizens were told that Roosevelt had stranded a group of Marines on the canal. Apparently, these stranded Americans had been wiped out by the glorious armies of the Japanese Empire. It was probably good that it was dark, so none of the men on the ground had to look the others in the eye. Now, the significance of this battle was immense. Even if those involved did not realize it at the time, the Americans had 12,500 men and the Japanese about 6,200. This was the first time the Japanese suffered a defeat involving a unit of this size. By the middle of September, news reached Tokyo. Both the Army and the Navy command staffs came to the conclusion that Guadalcanal might be developing into the decisive battle of the war. Further, this affected other operations in the Pacific. If the Japanese were going to send enough men and material to defeat the Americans on the canal, they would have to pull resources from other areas, in this case, the offensive in New Guinea. Thus, troops on New Guinea, who were within 30 miles of their objective, Port Moresby, had to withdraw until the situation on the canal was resolved. Since they never did restart that drive to take Port Moresby, the loss at Edson's Ridge really did contribute to not only the eventual Japanese defeat on the canal, but throughout the South Pacific. Now before we go, just a few more things. If you remember, the Japanese infantry soldier, who just a month or so prior to this point had been seen as invincible, was now seen in a different light. The mystique had been shattered. Partly this is due to the fact that, and you might have noticed it, they didn't rely on tactics, strategy, or technology. Instead, they emphasized fighting spirit, as the Antol notes, and the bonsai charge was their main doctrine. If you did this against disciplined troops backed up by artillery, well, those charges are insane. Two times in three weeks, the fanatical bayonet charge had been repelled, and the casualty ratios were insane, something like 10 to 1. Japan could not sustain these sorts of casualties if it wanted to win. Further, this meant that, among the Marines, morale was on the rise. They were able to listen to Radio Tokyo's broadcast with good humor. Now, speaking of morale, it was further boosted when, on the 18th of September, reinforcements arrived. The 7th Marines were, began disembarking from their transports that day, quite unexpectedly. With them arrived large amounts of food, medical supplies, ammunition, and construction equipment. Morale improved further 
the last thing the Japanese needed if they were going to win this thing. However, and this is a bit of a tease I know, but where was the Japanese Navy? It seems the Americans had gotten lucky. Or had they? Okay, so that's all for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope to be back in two weeks with the next installment. Until then, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4, Episode 28 of the American History Podcast. And I'll see you all soon. Shut it off or I'll rip it. Oh, I'll pay the way to lie again. Wait a minute.